Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music-filled trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Since 1983, Eddie Trunk has been the voice for fans of rock, hard rock, and heavy metal. A best-selling author, host of TV's That Metal Show, and seven national radio shows, including Trunk Nation, daily on Sirius XM. Interesting. Eddie offers the world his newsmaking interviews, passionate analysis, honest commentary, and who knows what else. So welcome to the Eddie Trunk Podcast. But, of course, uh, this is really special. I'm excited for you guys to get your ears on this. If you have not heard this interview when it aired live or on SiriusXM, of course, by now you know, but I do need to let you know, that all the interviews you hear, almost all, say about 95% of them, originate on my SiriusXM radio show, Trunk Nation, which you can hear live daily, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time replaying every night 10 to midnight Eastern and on demand full shows or interviews on the Sirius XM app. And also on the app, a lot of cool video from some of these interviews. There's some video up there on the app right now of my almost two hour interview with Joe Elliott of Def Leppard recently. Also uh, Dave Navarro of Jane's addiction, Stephen Piercy of rat, a lot of cool stuff, including some video coming soon from the interview you are about to hear on this week's podcast. So, as I always say, if you are in the U.S. or Canada where you can get SiriusXM and subscribe to it for the cost of a couple of Starbucks, you could hear me every day live and get involved and engaged in the show. And I hope you certainly do come on board if you are not already. And remember, whatever the time you want to listen, it doesn't matter. I mean, of course, if you can listen to the show in the live window of every every day, 2 to 4 Eastern, that's ideal because you can call in and what have you. But because of the app and because of on demand, you can listen to it in you know, tons of people tell me they listen to the show on their drive home. They just go to the stream or hit the app and plug it into their car. And there you go. So a lot of different ways to listen to what I do on a daily basis. I hope you join me. If you are not joining me already here on the podcast, you are getting a tiny, tiny sample of what I do each and every day on volume for trunk nation. So I hope you enjoyed last week, Vivian Campbell, of course, of Def Leppard and Last in Line, 
And Frank Marino of Mahogany Rush, that was a great double dip last week with uh, two great guitar players. I hope you guys like that very much. Since I did that podcast, I saw Viv play again with Last in Line, opening for my beloved UFO, who played one of their final shows in New York City last week on what is uh, a final tour. I got to host the show at Sony Hall, a relatively new venue in New York, and had a great time there. And it's just always so special when I get a chance to see UFO. Phil Mogg's still in fine form. And, uh, you know, it makes you wonder, why end, you know? I mean, they're still so damn good, but Phil is in his early 70s now, and I understand everybody's kind of got the date where they're done with the touring, and they're kind of at that point, although what I was able to figure out in talking to the guys at the show is there are definitely going to be some more shows next year, at least a handful of them. Uh, They're playing a cruise, and then they're going to do some shows around that. So that's the good news if you're a big UFO fan like I am. And if you are a listener to the show on Sirius XM, you know that Phil Mogg was supposed to come into the studio for an interview with me last week that he did not make it for due to travel stuff and some some issues getting into New York City a day of the show. So I talked to Phil about that when I saw him, and he is going to reschedule. And once they wrap up this tour, which is, I think, around now, when he gets back to England and gets settled, he'll call in with an announcement about some stuff coming up for UFO. But they were still so damn good, and it was great to see a sold-out venue for them in New York City. Great set from Last in Line as well. So hope you guys enjoyed uh, the interviews last week. And again, please subscribe to the podcast, tell others about it, spread the word. Even though I've been doing it for a very long time, it always helps to grow the word and Uh, You guys get a chance to hear, like I said, some of these uh, great interviews that I'm doing on a daily basis on SiriusXM. Of course, if you're outside of the U.S. or Canada, well, then you've got uh, a great way for you to get a peek into what I'm doing, because unfortunately, you cannot subscribe to SiriusXM if you are in another country besides America or Canada. So anyway, this week, well, first of all, before we get to this week, let me tell you that the week you're hearing this in, I am uh, on vacation from the SiriusXM show. I had some vacation time I needed to use, so I took this week off. The day you're hearing this post, I'm in L.A. or flying to L.A., getting ready to host tonight on the 7th of November the latest fundraiser for the Dio Cancer Fund. I do two a year for them. This year is really going to be a lot of fun. Tonight should be because it is the Dio Bowling event. And this uh, this time around should be awesome because my bowling team, which is always star-studded, no exception this year, Dave Grohl, Geezer Butler, Brent Woods, Steven Adler, all on my bowling team. It all goes down tonight at Pins in Studio City. It should be a madhouse as usual, and it's all for a great cause for the Dio Cancer Fund. I just would have come from... Uh, 80s in the Sand in the Dominican Republic, so I'll tell you about that maybe on next week's show or, of course, on the radio show. And then this weekend, I've got an event in Houston on the 10th on Sunday called Foamhenge, featuring live performances from Ace Freely, Accept, Pat Travers, Power Trip, and more. Happens at Carbach Brewery in Houston. I did it last year. It was a blast. And I'm looking forward to this year as well. So that's coming up this Sunday, Foamhenge in Houston. Come on out if you are in that area of the country. And then I'm back live with all new shows for SiriusXM this coming Tuesday when I return from a little bit of a break. It's crazy because, you know, you 
as part of my deal doing a full-time radio show, you get a certain amount of vacation time. But I've been so busy with travel and work for Sirius XM, among other things, that I just didn't have the time to actually take my vacation time. And some companies, if you don't use it, you lose it, and you certainly don't want that to happen. So I'm trying to get some stuff, uh, you know, even though I'm working and not really just taking proper time off, it's just one thing I don't have to worry about while I'm running around the country this week, or the world for that matter, getting out to the Dominican Republic earlier in the week. So that's a little rundown. As I always tell you guys, please, please follow on Twitter at Eddie Trunk. That is where I, I where I am most active. It is my favorite social media platform. It is where I share the most as far as updates and photos and info with you. I also do some stuff on Instagram at Eddie Trunk. There's a fan page on Facebook. In all honesty, I just post some things on there. I don't really get do much with Facebook. And of course, EddieTrunk.com is my official online home. And I'll tell you what, like I say all the time, in addition to stuff going on with me on my website, really there's a ton of content unrelated to me, uh, just stuff that you want to know about in the world of rock, rock news that's updated every day on bands you would care about. So be sure to have a look at that. And some of my upcoming appearances beyond what I just mentioned include Tulsa IDL Ballroom, where I go so often and enjoy going, hosting Vixen and the Iron Maidens on November 23rd. And then uh, just added Erlanger, Kentucky, which is just minutes from Cincinnati, I'm told. December 14th, a new speaking Q&A show on the schedule, and that will be at Peacock's Lounge, the Erlanger, Kentucky location, which is right by Cincinnati, I'm told. December 14th, just added. Those are fun. I love doing the speaking Q&A shows. It's been a while. Did a run of them a couple months ago. Good to get another one on the schedule. December 14th. And then December 20th, right in my backyard in New Jersey, Clifton to be exact. It's our annual That Metal Show Christmas party. Myself, Don, and Jim reuniting. Live music. We hang out. We drink with everybody. We have a great time. Come join us December 20th. Always a great party. Dingbats in Clifton, the annual That Metal Show reunion event. One last thing, speaking of that metal show, I am continually asked about it, which is amazing to me, considering the show has been off the air, what, well over five years, and making it even more amazing is that the show does not replay or repeat anywhere. It's not available anywhere. Ridiculously, when it gets posted, old episodes get posted on YouTube or what have you. Viacom, the company that owns VH1, pulls them down, which is absurd. I mean, they're not doing anything with them themselves, so what's the point? But nothing I can do about it. Every once in a while, they do come up, and then they come down, and sometimes they're left. I don't know. But, you know, I am still asked about that metal show all the time, and I can't thank you guys enough for caring about it. It was, you know, something that was very near and dear to my heart, very much my baby, very much missed by me as well. I can tell you that in in recent uh, months, there's still a push for that show. Myself, Don, and Jim talk about it frequently. And there is some interest in, you know, we're, we're talking to some people about trying to find a way to bring it back in some capacity. My thing is that I don't want to do it unless it can be done at least at the level of what it was. You know, the studio audience and a real outlet for people to be able to see it. 
And I've said all along, what we need is somebody at a network, whether it be a streaming network or or a uh, over-the-air network that loves and gets the show and realizes the value of it and also realizes that there's a ton of people right now that still want the thing back. So I'm not sure what the future holds, but we're it's not a dead issue as far as we're concerned. It's just a question of finding the outlet and finding somebody that wants to do it. I even have somebody that's interested and willing to pay for a season. But, of course, if you pay that kind of money, you want to see your money come back. And, you know, I don't want I want to don't want to see people lose their shirt because that's the thing you get from people all the time. Oh, just put it on YouTube. OK, well, somebody puts up half a million dollars to make a season. Where are they getting their money back if you post it on YouTube? And then do you really want me asking you to pay another subscriber fee for something? And I, I mean, I just talked to you about Sirius XM. I mean, for a very reasonable amount of money, you can get like 150 channels of 24-7 content. I don't know, it's like 10, 15 bucks a month, right? But you still got people that hem and haw about that. And now what I've seen happen is, you know, it's funny. There was this whole move for the longest time. You know, you heard about the cord cutters, right? To get rid of cable TV, cut the cord. Get rid of cable. Get rid of the cable companies. Don't need them anymore. Just get, you know, do your do stuff streaming. Well, how's that working out now when everybody and their mother is asking you for money for a subscriber fee to stream something? Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, Apple just launched, CBS, ESPN, all these shows. What do you so now you instead of paying a hundred bucks a month to the cable company, you're paying a hundred bucks a month to various streaming services. You're back to square one. So I'm real conscious of that, and I want to make sure that if we do something ever again, it's done the right way, it's done that's fair to the fans, and it's not yet another outlet asking you for a monthly subscriber fee unless you can really bring some some great content or value to it. And I know there's a ton of smaller podcasts and platforms that also have paid walls or whatever, but I, I, I want it to be real, you know, if we do it. So I'm feeling like I'm feeling like there's still some momentum and I just wanted to address that because every day I'm still asked about that metal show and people think I get annoyed about being asked about it and you may have seen myself Don and Jim joke about it on social media you know hey did you ever think of Netflix because of course we thought of Netflix Netflix has to want the show but I I appreciate the hell out of people caring and still asking about it and uh you know who knows what what happens down the line you just need that one believer at a at a real broadcast platform that'll say, yeah, I'll put that on. Let's do that. And I, just, I don't know why. I just got a feeling like we're getting closer to that happening. And I, I honestly would tell you if there was something really concrete or something really happening, there isn't. But I just feel like good things happening with rock and people still clamoring for that show. Maybe there's something good in the future. We'll see. All right. So. A little longer open than normal, but I had a little breathing room and a little extra time here today, so I thought I'd spend a little time just talking to the podcast audience here at the top of the show. Let's get to the interview, because this is a gargantuan interview, and it's somebody I wanted to talk to for a very long time. You guys know, and if you listened a couple months ago, I had a great interview with songwriter Holly Knight. People really love that conversation. This guy that the interview is with this week is probably the most successful songwriter, certainly to come out of the eighties. 
and I'm talking about Desmond Child. Uh, I wanted to interview Desmond for the longest time. He has a live record that's just come out, and we set it up when he was going to be in New York City. He came into the studio. He was a little. We got started about 20 minutes later than I wanted to, but we still had over an hour to talk. But with this guy's career and his credits, I mean, an hour scratches the surface. An hour, the hour and 15 you're about to hear just scratches the surface, or hour, whatever this comes out to, an hour probably, of as far as the interview. But whether it's Alice Cooper, whether it's Bon Jovi, whether it's Kiss, whether it is Aerosmith, on and on and on. Um, I talk about the broad strokes and the big things he did. There was a million other things I wanted to talk to him about, just ran out of time. We will do another round. After this interview ended, Desmond and I talked for a good half hour more. And he's got a couple more projects coming, including a book and also a documentary he wants to work on about his life. So we'll do more for sure down the line. But I think, you know, I love getting the stories of the songs and how they were written with the people who helped create them. And this guy has got his stamp on so many major, major tunes in music history. And of course, you know, Desmond's career is varied in the type of artists and music that he's done. My show being very proudly a rock destination Although a few other things are touched on in the conversation, obviously, and I told him this, we steered the conversation towards the rock end of what he's done. So enjoy, ladies and gentlemen, on the Eddie Trunk podcast from my SiriusXM show a couple weeks ago, songwriter extraordinaire Desmond Child coming up next. The Eddie Trunk Podcast. Hey, attention, true crime lovers. The hit Reels Channel show Autopsy is coming to Podcast One with all new episodes. Join Dr. Michael Hunter and those involved in the cases as they examine the autopsy reports for some of the most famous celebrity deaths of our time, including Patrick Swayze, Chris Farley, and Natalie Wood. Download new episodes of Autopsy every week on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. All right, I set it all up just a few minutes ago, so let's get to it right now. Without further ado, it was an honor to have in my studio one of the most acclaimed songwriters ever, Desmond Child. Enjoy this conversation on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Desmond Child, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thanks for coming in. Desmond Child Live is the album, which we'll talk about here in a second, which is you actually, all these songs you've written over the years, you actually taking a little ownership of them in a way, right? Telling people, hey, I... Well, I wrote I always these had, things. I always had ownership. <laughs> well, that's true. I'm sure you did. <laughs> but like my good friend Diane Warren says, uh, you know, our little name goes on the big check. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, I, th- that's now I don't even know where to begin, but I want to start at the beginning with you because you started out as a, a performer and as an artist with a band called Desmond Child and Rouge, correct? That's right. So that was your first thing that you did. Um, coming that, out of college. Coming yeah. out of college. NYU. Here in New York City, right? NYU. And that was late 70s? I graduated in 76. Okay. Now, how successful commercially was Desmond Child and Rouge? Well, uh, <laughs> I think we were hipper than we were successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we were the talk of the town. We were 
the special artists, you know, the featured guest artists on Saturday Night Live, mm. 1979. We came out with two albums the same year. Um, it was the same year that my song with uh, Kiss broke, I Was Made for Loving You. Yeah, we'll get to that. And um, And so we toured the country, and then... You know, it was all too much for us. You know, we were under so much stress, and and so our band broke up. But uh, we're back, though. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So we're we're re-releasing our first two albums on BMG Rights, um, coming the next, um, you know, in the spring, and also we've started recording new songs too. Wow. Now here's here's where I'm going to get at. To me, it's an interesting. I just recently did a show with Holly Knight, and we Love talked her. about we talked about her. We had a great conversation. We talked about her early band and her transition, Spider. right, to go from a performer and the person out front that everybody saw and on the album jackets to kind of circling behind the scenes and becoming a songwriter and being the person behind the songs that's not necessarily the marquee name. That to me, if you're an entertainer and a writer and a musician is a pivotal moment because where did it, where did that shift where you said, you know what, I'm not going to be worried about having my name on the cover of the records. I'm going to worry about writing some songs and having my name listed real small with the other writers, but actually be just as creative and lucrative. Really? Let's be honest. It wasn't that thought through because I really did want to be the biggest star in the world. Uh, but when my group broke up, I I kind of went into an incubation period, and I found a producer, Bob Crew, who had produced the Four Seasons, and wrote all the songs with Bob Gaudio. And uh, I don't know if you've seen Jersey Boys. I have he, not. He's one of the characters in Jersey Boys. So I spent two years with him. You know, it was really like songwriting college. Mm. And it was every day, Brill Building style. We'd meet at 12, 1 o'clock we'd be writing, and 5 o'clock he'd leave. And that was it, five days a week, two years. And had I not done those, those intense years with him, I would not have been able to write the songs that I wrote after I knew him, which is right away I had... Um, a hit with Bon Jovi called You Give Love a Bad Name. Never heard of it. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> and uh, which I collaborated with John and Richie on that. But a lot of the inner rhyming, the um, the alliteration, the irony, uh, he taught me to tr- always try to come up with a title that has an uh, ironic twist. Like you give love a bad name. Love and bad usually are mm. opposites. I hate myself for loving you. Uh, heaven's on fire. Um, there's, how can we be lovers if we can't be friends? You know, there, there's so many examples of it. Um, it was always about the t- the title was the, the driver. The title was the driver. That's what he taught me. I used to sit down at a piano, start playing chords and mumbling around, hoping that the muse would strike and maybe one of my little mumbles would sound like a word and then I'd build a castle on it. And that's completely, you know, backwards. Mm. Um, once I started writing like real professional songwriters do and really have a, know what I'm going to sing about, the, the lyric is the, is the script. And you make the movie 
and then you put the the the, the soundtrack to it, right? The score. So if you think of it that way, um, you, the music supports what the lyrics are saying. I'll give you a perfect example in in a song that I co-wrote with Draco Rosa called Live in La Vida Loca. Ricky Martin. Yeah. Uh, it goes into the second verse and it goes, Woke up in New York City right. in a funky, cheap hotel. And it opens with, with, with a gong. So it's that gong that makes you feel like you can smell the incense and going through beaded curtains. Everything's like red velvet. Just th- that sound brought the lyric to life. Mm. Let me ask you this. This sort of songwriting boot camp that you had, this happened after your band broke up. Yes. If that would have happened in reverse and you would have had that songwriting boot camp prior to doing your own band, do you think the results for Desmond Child and Rouge would have been more favorable? I do. Because, yeah. I mean, a lot. we were so young, we we couldn't handle... All this, and the reason we were we were brought together is because we all had had troubled childhoods, and so that was our bond. We made our own family, but that became our undoing later because we didn't have this emotional um, confidence, mm. you know, to 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 not break up. That's right. what happens. Almost every band breaks up. And everybody goes and does their solo career, and then they finally come back together and do their legacy tour. <laughs> you right, know? right, right, right. That's the way it goes, right? Well, you said you wanted your goal was to be the biggest star. You wanted to be the guy out there. You wanted to be the guy in the magazine covers. So, so where does the transition? You have this songwriting boot camp sort of, sort of thing, and is that where the your your sort of um, eyes open to saying, "Hey, there's another world out here." that I can be very successful and work in the music industry, but not necessarily be the guy on the album covers. I kind of created a career by mistake, which was when I collaborated with Kiss, with Paul Stanley, specifically of Kiss, uh, and co-wrote I Was Made For Loving You, um, I started getting calls from other bands because before that, bands didn't, co-write with professional outside songwriters they co-wrote with each other right and maybe their girlfriend <laughs> or um the producer but it was never you know kind of thought th- thought out that you know okay we're going to bring in somebody outside the band and once i started having success with bon jovi then i got the call from aerosmith and then i got the call from alice cooper and joan jett because you know i'm not about my own style i'm about helping the the artist tell their story your personal taste in music that you love personally is what what would you classify it as well i mean i love so many things that i mean do you consider yourself a fan of hard rock? The reason I ask is you've had such a big imprint on a lot of hard rock. But do you, but do you need to be a fan of it to write successfully with artists like that? Well, I'm a fan of it, but it's more like the difference between playing in a football game and watching a football game. You know, when you're playing it, then you're all about it. Mm-hmm. And then when you're watching it, you know, it's like, I don't know. Armchair quarterback, as they say. Yeah, no, I'm, I, I'm in the now, so I'm always working. So I'm always finding out about a new style of music. I got into Latin music, 
and wrote a bunch of hits with Draco Rosa for Ricky Martin. You know, The Cup of Life, Live in La Vida Loca, She Bangs, Shake Your Bon Bon. And, and then, um, you know, I started getting heavily into pop and I was producing Kelly Clarkson and Carrie Underwood and Bo Bice mm. and, um, you know, doing pop music. Because to me, it's not about the, the style, it's about the soul. It's about the story. Um, a couple of years ago, um, I had a hit with Zed, which is ele- electronic dance music, mm-hmm. a song called Beautiful Now. Mm-hmm. And I co-wrote with Andreas Carlson, who came out of this whole Swedish boy band thing, and we co-wrote Waking Up in Vegas with Katy Perry, mm-hmm. which is kind of like a rock song, mm-hmm. you know, kind of based on Hit Me With Your Best Shot. Mm. I've told Eddie Schwartz, I confess, that... <laughs> that we stole we stole the the chords from his song. He did laughed. you did you realize you met Paul Stanley because he would come to see your band, mm-hmm. right? Desmond Child and Rouge. Mm-hmm. So so um did you realize the song that you wrote with him and I believe Vinnie Poncia, the producer, also has a credit well, on the song. Later but... later he joined the song and during the course of production. Okay. But Paul and I were the ones that co wrote the song. Were you a KISS fan? Leading into that? Not really. I mean, I thought Kiss was like for little kids and stuff. At that time, they were. Yeah. That was absolutely the knock on them, yeah. for sure. So I really, you know, then those kids grew up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and now those kids are us. <laughs> well, the, well, the reason why I ask you that is that, it, ask you this question, is that uh, I grew up a huge Kiss fan. And that particular song, I Was Made for Loving You, and that particular period was a very, very polarizing moment for KISS because although it was a hugely successful song and still is, it was radically different than what people knew KISS for. It was uh, an out-and-out hard rock band, you know, black leather and fire and blood suddenly going into the quote-unquote disco world. And there was a huge backlash to that song among the KISS fan base at that time, but it was subbed out by this whole other world that would never listen to KISS that came in and loved that song. Were you aware that the song that you had just created with KISS that would become this huge hit would also, to this day, be somewhat polarizing with their fan base? I I can't see that. I mean... We changed the course of pop music with that song. We brought heavy rock guitars to dance beat. Around that time is when they invented drum machines. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you listen to even rock music now, there's so much, so much rock music has, you know, synchronized drums and loops and hard guitars and, you know, all of that. And I think that um, it was it was kind of. Uh, one of those fateful moments because I was experimenting with drum machines and all that at that time I had this little thing. And so I was telling um, Paul about it and I said, let's, let's do something to a dance beat. And so that's, and, and, you know, Gene hated it from beginning to end. <laughs> he still does. He says, you yeah. know, <laughs> but meanwhile, it, it really is their most successful international song yeah. to this date. Yeah. The reason why I bring it up is because I wondered from your perspective as a co-writer of the song, it it is to this day, it's a song where people, it is a hugely, hugely successful song that they still play live. But at that time, 1979, it was a polarizing shot to the Kiss Army. And it's, it's fascinating to get your perspective on it. So circling back, 
the first time I saw your name or heard your name was was the co-write on I Was Made For Loving You. Because I was such a Kiss fan. I read every liner note. I read everything. Hey, who's this guy that co-wrote this, this huge song? So the success of that, is that the moment where you say, hey, I'm going to start doing this with other people? Because shortly afterwards, I'm a huge fan of Billy Squires. And your name popped up on an album a year later, his first album after his band Piper, right. Tale of the Tape, a song, great song called You Should Be High, Love. And I'm like, wait a minute. One year I got this song, a Kiss record with this guy's name on it. A year later, I got a Billy Squire album with this guy's name on it. Who is this Desmond Child guy? So were you going down, you were, you were sort of putting your roots in as, as an outside songwriter at that point? Well, I, I just figured that having hits was good for me. So I just kind of went for it, but all the while wanting to have my own solo career. And then I got so busy, but also uh, remember this one thing, because I'm gay, I never really got the job as producer. And there was a real glass ceiling there. Uh, And um, everyone, all the rock bands, macho rock bands and all that were fine co-writing with me because that's, you're equal, you know, in that situation. But the producer, that's when you really have to bitch slap people <laughs> into shape. And uh, they, it, it seemed like they never, no one ever said anything, but I had a real hard time. So when I started having the really big hits with, with bands like Bon Jovi and, you know, Living on a Prayer and all that, um, I started arm twisting the labels into letting me produce. But of course, you know, the the acts I could produce were like the weirdos, you know, like um, Cher, um, Meatloaf, um, Joan Jett, Alice Cooper, more solo artists, but they were kind of androgynous. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of allowable. And then, you know, eventually, of course, all of that fell away. But for decades, I was the only out producer in music. Until, what year? Un, what un, year? From that point on, early on, you were you were you were out in seventy nine, eighty back then. Well, my our second Desmond Child and Rouge record called Runners in the Night. Uh, that's when you know I had realized that I was more gay than I was bi, and my co founder Maria Vidal and I were were you know boyfriend. We were boyfriend and girlfriend. And, um, you know, we couldn't stay together, and that was one of the things. But the very first song on Runners in the Night, the song's called The Truth Comes Out. Mm. And, you know, it was really a struggle because, you know, I loved her dearly, but I had this very strong pull in a different direction. And, you know, I didn't have that much support for that, Mm. you know, so... A very different time, obviously, yeah. Yeah, so, so... it wasn't until Linda Perry came along that there was another out producer, uh, but that took decades to happen. So, you know, in a way, I've kind of been a maverick in in, in ways. And, um, you know, I met my, my life partner, Curtis, uh, 31 years ago, and eventually we had, we were one of the first gay male couples to have children uh, through in vitro, um, fertilization Mm -hmm. and uh we made a movie about it called Two: the story of roman and nero it's on amazon and itunes and you know it's kind of a thing where it's it's like in a way 
working with the bands um, the way that I did, I always kind of was like the palace eunuch because the guys could trust me with their wives. So, <laughs> I, you know, we'd go in for a meal and then they'd ask me for like decor- decorating tips. <laughs> And it's like I'm not gay for nothing. I know where to. I, I know how to fluff a pillow on a couch, and so um, I was a safe person. All right. And so uh, I think that actually helped me in that sense. Right. You know. So it was a double-edged sword. Let Let me ask you about. Uh, I want to get into specific songs here for for a bit, but before we do that. When I, most of, and I could be wrong on this because I know the bulk of your rock stuff, but I know you've done stuff way outside of the rock spectrum as well, and that you're very proud of. But am I correct in that much of the stuff that you've uh, contributed to as a songwriter has been in a co-writing capacity? Are you more of a collaborator than someone who creates songs themselves? Uh, almost every one of the credits I know that, I, that I'm aware of, that you've worked with John Bon Jovi, Richie Sambora, with Paul Stanley, with Tyler and Perry, with whoever it may be. Well, or, or do you create, do you like to create on your own as well? And do you do that? I, I really don't like being alone. I had a very lonely childhood, so I love collaborating. And in the early beginnings um, of Desmond Child and Rouge, I was writing the songs. And Maria was working in a diner, and her diner name was Gina Velvet. So in Living on a Prayer, the story of Tommy and Gina is sort of our story, because I was home and and writing songs, and then she was, um, you know, bringing home her pay. Uh, you know, for love. Oh, you know? wow. So that's really your story. Well, I think know, based I, on. Yes, I think that, you know, in a collaboration like that, I think John brought his story into it, you know, working class story and Richie did. And I brought in that aspect of it because I lived it um, when I was, you know, starting out. Do you think that as a writer, your strength is more in music or lyrics or do you equal? I think my super strength is lyrics and concepts mm-hmm. and visualizations. And of course, you know, my mother was a songwriter and she was a Cuban bolero writer. And so I grew up, I didn't know people didn't write songs. So I grew up just getting right up at the piano and making little concertos and all that. So I, I think that for me, after working with Bob Crew, it's like the melody has to serve the lyric to bring out the 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 emotion of mm. of 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 what you're singing about are so, you always writing or are you somebody that has to dedicate time to it and sit down and go in a room and turn everything off or are you somebody that middle of the night i've talked to artists uh, hit the memo on their phone they just hum something or just something just came to me is it always happening or is it you really have to focus on getting it going well maybe it was those two years with bob crew but it's like when you go to work writing time is writing time and then that's when you write. So, I mean, in in my home, I don't have any awards or, you know, the only piano in the house is in the basement. It's sort of like, that's, that's like that. It's professional. Mm. But, you know, I'm doing all, all kinds of things. You know, last year, because I've been so busy fighting for songwriter rights, I'm, I'm, you know, I was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2008, and uh, I was only the third Hispanic 
person ever inducted in 50 years. There was Jobim, Ernesto Lacuona from Cuba, and then me. And um, I I decided, because my mom had died around the same time, and she was a songwriter to, to help to co-found the Latin Songwriters Hall of Fame. And because I had done this whole thing when with Ricky Martin, with all those Latin songs and all that. So that's in my blood. Mm. And so as far as as writing a, alone, last year, I, what I was saying is I'm on the board of ASCAP. I'm, you know, out there, you know, in Washington, you know, walking those halls, fighting for the Music Modernization Act, which is a really great start. But we're not not all there you know what I'm saying, in mm-hmm. terms of raising rates and right. so people can make careers out of music. So I only wrote one song last year. And I wrote it for Barbara Streisand. And I solely wrote it. I spent two months on it. Mm. I, I, I spent weeks listening to all her music from the very beginning and really got into my system how she likes to sing, what vowels are best for her voice, what the melodic jumps are that show off her voice. And she wanted to write a song. Uh, she wanted uh, her her album, sorry, she wanted her album to be a, a patriotic album, an album that was inspirational to to get bring the country back together mm-hmm. and said it's so polarized. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a song for her called Lady Liberty. And uh, it's on her album Walls. And it's one of my proudest achievements because it, it really is, it's a song about, you know, you know, the Statue of Liberty, which has been kind of forgotten these days. Even the word democracy seems like a bad word because maybe it has the word Democrat in it or something. Mm. And now we're a, we're a republic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, this song talks about how, you know, it has a lyric in, you know, about that terrible September mm-hmm. when we stopped and cried together. Mm. That's a, that's so that's the most recent thing. Yeah, and uh today is the actual year since it was released. It today's also the birthday of the Statue of Liberty. And Which we can almost see from where we're sitting actually and right now. It's my birthday too. It's your birthday today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Happy birthday, Desmond. Thank you. That's awesome. I did not know that. All right, well here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a break and then when we come back, I want to hit the birthday boy here, Desmond, with some songs that I've, you know, I've written a few, well, we're not going to ever get to all of these, but I've written down a sheet of a few of them, of some of my favorites that he worked on, and I want to get a few thoughts and a few stories. I've got the dirt You've got the dirt, song. he's got the stories, We want. I want to get some stuff from Desmond specifically about uh, some of the incredible songs that he has contributed to all of our soundtracks when we come back. And again, Desmond Child Live is his own record which is out there right now and you can hear his interpretations of some of these songs uh, done live here in new york city did i read this right it's the old studio 54 downstairs feinstein's 54 below i walk by it all the time and i don't know what's in there because it was studio 54 and then it was the ritz for a little while when the ritz moved it's a a performance venue it's a very elegant new york cabaret really Like, like old school I did not know the, what went on in there now. It's awesome. Wow. And, and w- I did three nights there that we recorded, and that's what became of this album. I saw, of, uh, and again, I, all over the map here, I know, but what, before, before I forget this, I saw a video, I think it was on YouTube or something that someone sent me, and somebody said, 
was the worst or silliest song you ever wrote, and it was you at a piano singing Let's Put the X in Sex. Was that there? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. No, no. That was just like a songwriter in the round somewhere. <laughs> that did not make it onto this record, but I thought that was a funny moment of, of you singing. I've never heard. Uh, no, that wasn't. That's really not the silliest song. The silliest song is You Make Me Rock Hard. Which is on the same record. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, both Kiss songs, by the way. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with songwriter and producer Desmond Child after this. This, this is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Let's get back to more of my conversation with songwriter and producer Desmond Child right now on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Desmond Child talking about his incredible career, and I know we're just going to be able to scratch the surface here in the time that we have left, but I appreciate the time that we do have. Desmond Child Live is the name of the live album that he has just put out, where some songs that you know from other artists, whether they be Bon Jovi or whether they be Kiss or Aerosmith or what have you, uh, songs that he co-wrote and he is performing with his own band that is available now desmond child live so desmond before we run out of time and we have some people in the audience that would love to say hello too if we have time we'll grab a call or two but i wanted to get some specifics from you on some of my favorites now we talked about i was made for loving you but but talk about your work because i don't think it's discussed much you you did a few songs with billy squire who's one of my favorite writers i love billy's songs and most of billy's work throughout his entire career he has been the sole songwriter on almost every one of his recordings uh very rare to see him have anybody working with him as a writer even people in his band how did you align with him because you did something before he even broke in america uh, with that first solo record I really don't remember how we hooked up, but he lived in the most beautiful apartment on Central Park West. It was a low floor, but it was laid out so, so beautiful. I was so impressed with his, you know, aesthetic choices, his artwork and everything. And so we 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 tried writing some songs. It wasn't easy writing with him. It was not. No, no, it wasn't. Um, I don't know why I had a hard time getting him to just let it all go, like be relaxed. Mm-hmm. And um, he always seemed a little bit defensive. And I'm I'm not quite sure why. Maybe he just didn't really have that much experience playing in the same sandbox with other children. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, um, you know, he's, he's, he's a very special person. And, um, you know, I, I, I was hoping that he would come back especially after I, I really started having the big hits, you know, but I don't know why he didn't come back. Maybe. But you did go back and work with him. You did one song in 80, and then about five, six years later, you did a couple songs on an album called Here and Now that he had released. I don't know if they were done at the same time, and he only yeah, did them. I think they might have been written before, oh. and then they kind of researched. But I don't remember those Stronger. songs. Stronger. Great song. Stronger. Wow. It wasn't a hit, but it's a great song in here now, and also a song called Tied Up. I you want really some loving, that. but your heart's tied up. Does that yeah, come to you? you want some loving, but, but your heart's tied up. Those are Gosh, I didn't remember those. I love when I'm telling the guy who wrote them about him. It's so funny, because I went into a restaurant, and I heard John Bon Jovi's voice, and I said, wow, what song is that? And then it's like, 
Oh right, that's one of the other songs we wrote on Slippery. Right. It it wasn't till deep into the chorus that it all came back to me. Probably without love. Something like that, yeah. Because yeah, that's one of the album tracks that yeah. wasn't a hit on that or released right. as a single that you have a co-write on. Right. So, okay, so so a little bit with Billy here and there. And then, really, you would um, you you loom large in the Kiss story kind of coming in and out of that because you would come back on it. So, so here, and this is what we referenced before. So here you are, the guy that, that co-writes the song, the, the quote-unquote disco song from Kiss. Huge hit, but as I said, polarizing very much with the fan base. A few years later, Kiss comes back with an album called Animal Eyes, which is one of the most heavy ripping rock records they ever made and you have several co-writes on that including a song called i've had enough which is super heavy under the gun which is super heavy and then the huge uh, mtv hit heavens on fire so a few albums go by after the success of i was made for loving you how does kiss circle back specifically paul because that's who you're doing all this with come back mm. on your radar well he just called me and 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 i you know said let's let's try writing again so we did and and that um that whole you know da, 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 da. i got a lot of mileage out of that you know like the intro to i hate myself for loving you yeah da, 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 da. i mean it was like oh wow i never put that together <laughs> da, but da, yeah da, 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 da. it went down instead of up yeah i didn't realize that yeah <laughs> and um I think that that song inspired Bon Jovi's song called In and Out of Love. Same melody. That was on Fahrenheit. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why when when Paul suggested uh, he co-write with me um, and gave him my number, that that came together because I think he admired that song. Mm. And then you would you would do a lot of other work beyond Animalize, then the Asylum record. You had about four or five songs on that one, including one of my favorites, "Who Wants to Be Lonely." I love that song. Now, did Jean Beauvoir write with that on that? Yes, too? I think he. Yeah, Jean has a piece yeah, of that well, one too. I, I mean, his bass riff on that was like what. Which he admitted he played. Now he's admitted that he, he's yeah. actually playing that on the record as well. <laughs> yeah, but it, that's what made that record his that bass line. Yeah. Did you did you on any of these things? Did you also perform on them in any way? No, like no. where Jean actually t- has played bass on a couple tracks. No, you never actually sang. I, I'm or performed not a good. En- I'm not actually a good enough musician to play on anything. So <laughs> <laughs> you know uh, your place. You're going to write the songs. <laughs> I I have a special voicing on piano, and you know I can clunk away. You know, and and I mean I really do have a good ear and all that, but in terms of dexterity or being you know like a real musician no okay where does the bon jovi story factor in where does the connection to bon jovi and the the slippery record which of course a gargantuan album how does that come on your radar like i said paul stanley um gave john bon jovi my number and john called me and when they came off tour i went and uh, i rented a car to drive out to new jersey to this little neighborhood that was a cul-de-sac and behind this little wooden house it was like Amityville horror like a little (laughs) house right but it had nothing around it but a marsh all as far as the eye could see like this gray marsh and then a refinery 
Like, must have been the most toxic place in the world to live. <laughs> that would be Saraville, ladies and gentlemen. I know it very well as a Jersey guy. And um, I, I, I walked in and uh, go in, and then I made a left. And then on the left was Richie's bedroom, which is on the ground floor. So this is Richie's mom's house. Yeah. Well, he, he might lived, have been in Woodbridge. Then. Where he lived. Where he lived with his parents. So they were still living at home. Yes. Okay, first two albums had come out, not didn't set the world on fire, but still living in all. Well, they were touring. Uh, it didn't right. make sense to have a place, right? Sure. So, I I, I peeked in, messy bed, uh, Farrah Fawcett um, poster, <laughs> Kiss posters. You know, it was first, like this. Your first time meeting John. Yes. Yeah, yes. So it was like, it was just like a typical teenage rocker's bedroom. And then I kept walking, and then there was the kitchen. And and that was the first time I laid eyes on John Bon Jovi with the big hair from Louis the Fifteenth, the 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 ripped knees, you know, and he was on a wall phone, like an avocado wall phone, right? right? Probably with his manager, Doc McGee. Right. And he kind of like nodded like this. And then Richie kind of like showed me downstairs to the basement. Like, you know, it was very creepy. And it was kind of dark down there and it was kind of wet. And there were these transoms, you know, kind of like you could barely see daylight. And there was this uh, Formica table that had been kind of discarded down there. And they had put a little keyboard on there. There was some amps and, you know, some guitars. And that was the writing room. And so I waited, you know, a while and, you know, Richie's the people pleaser. So he kept like saying, are you okay? Are you okay? Finally, John came down and um, it was kind of like, they're very, very nice. But I had a title in my back pocket. I literally, the title, we go back to the, I literally had it written on a piece of paper in my back pocket. You give love a bad name. The minute I pulled it out, I got the first billion dollar Bon Jovi smile. You know, like his face just lit up with all those teeth. And it was like, wow. And so just from the title, just from the title, immediately to the title, because he immediately, I mean, he's not one to let a hook go to waste. So there was a song on Fahrenheit called Shot Through the Heart. Yep, I know it. So he grabbed that. It's actually on the first record, I think. Really? Yeah. He grabbed that and said, Shot Through the Heart, and you two blame. And then the three of us said, Because you give love a bad name. And like we just like that was our first like you know high five, and right uh, there you know this is going to work. I mean, it, it was chemistry. Yeah, and because I felt it was so exciting that I mean I didn't expect it to, to to be that way. I think it was one of those things where fate was was pushing us together. When you feel the force of fate behind an action, it feels different than just. Yeah, yeah, whatever. So when you're in that dank, musty New Jersey basement of Richie Sambora's mom, and you're working on this, and you're coming up with, in this initial session, does Living on a Prayer also come at that time, the same no. session? No, that happened in the city. They came into the city. And so I borrowed uh, Doug Schneider's little apartment that had an up upright grand. It was old, brown, kind of, you know falling apart piano and that's where we started the song and it john was in a different mood that day he said he wanted to write a story song so i i started playing chords uh from you know you know a kind of a mood from laura nero 
who is one of my idols. Mm-hmm. And in fact, my son's named after her, Laura, N-Y-R-O. And um, I started playing these moody chords. And then, you know, just this, it just like all that. And then, you know, the whole thing, you know, it was, it was going to be, um, you know, I started telling the story about uh, Johnny and Gina. And then John said, no, I can't sing Johnny because then people think it's me. Then he said, Tommy. It was like this next sound alike, mm. Tommy and Gina. And that's, that's how it was born. But I have to say the song was kind of artsy and mm. kind of sensitive. And John decided he didn't want to do it because he wanted to keep going down this very like hard rock direction. And literally me and Richie got on our hands and knees, half joking, half not, and begged him to at least cut it. Mm. And the rest is history. Yeah, it certainly is. Are you aware when you write a living on a prayer or a you give love a bad name in that moment, are you aware that you've just created something super special that's going to endure and become a huge hit? Or are you like, in other words, when you write something that that that, that has become, of course, at the time you probably didn't realize it, or maybe you did, but it, these have become a whole generation's classic rock. Living on a Prayer is sung every night somewhere in some karaoke bar or something, heard every minute. Are you aware what you did or do you say, well, we'll see what happens. It's just another song. Or did you know it was special? Do you know a hit's a hit when you write it? I I, ha- I can't say that because I give my all 100% every song. And I never think I'm writing a hit. I'm there to create in the sacred circle with the people I'm working with and to tell the story. I, if I started to think, oh, I'm going to write a hit... I'd, it's like riding a bike and then thinking about it, and then you fall off the bicycle. Mm. I, you know, it, that's not the process. So something happens when you're a true artist, where you know you have skill and you have an innate talent, um, but you also have to have a curiosity about the world around you, and let what's happening in the world touch you. And sometimes the stuff that's happening in the world, you don't want it to touch you. Because it hurts. Mm. And sometimes it triggers hurts that are already inside you. Then on the other side of the coin, and I really believe this, think there's a part of our brain that connects to something that's universal. That's what people go to pray to. Mm-hmm. Right? That's their like little tower to something. I think there are cells. I'm not saying there's anything beyond anything. I'm just saying that some people... You know that some people can see color more vividly than others, you know? And I think that maybe it's the same thing with music or lyrics. They have those extra little bit of cells that can put two and two together and then bring in what's happening in the world and this impulse. And then when those things crash together, coming towards each other in the front of one's consciousness, that's creation. Can you give me an example of a song that became a huge hit for you that you never expected to become one. And the, the opposite of that, a song that you had a hand in writing that you're stone cold, that's going to be a smash and didn't do anything. Do you have examples of those? Um, let me see. Well, one that I thought really deserved to be a hit is hide your heart. Yeah. 
which I co-wrote. Well, it was a song originally started by Holly Knight and Paul Stanley, and it was called Bite Down Hard. And so I just thought that at that time that that was too suggestive. Right. And because, the, you know, the, I was trying to gather songs for Bonnie Tyler. And so um, I got one great song out for Bonnie Tyler out of Holly, which was You're Simply the Best. Bonnie Tyler did that originally? Originally. Wow. And so then two years later, Tina Turner cut it. Right. And I mean, I had so many hits on that Bonnie Tyler record that for political reasons, I can't even go into um, that album pretty much got shelved. But then she was touring and she couldn't do that song anymore, even though it was her first single, because it it looked like she was covering uh a kiss song. Uh, no, Tina Turner's. Oh, oh, a Tina's. Oh, simply yeah, the best. Simply right. the best. Right. But uh, hide your heart uh, was you know she... like four people did hide your heart and nobody had a hit with it, but it is a great song. I know it is crazy. So so good. Yeah, it really is. It still is a great song. It's it's crazy that that wasn't. All right, let me hit you with some other stuff because we didn't even touch on Aerosmith. Where does Aerosmith come into your world? Do they do, at this point you're up, you're running, you're having tremendous success. Desmond Child is the first name coming out. I think for a lot of people looking to for whether it be a co-writer or a song doctor or whatever you want to call it, is that do, are you connected with Aerosmith through a label or your reps? How does that go down? Well. When I started having those early hits with Bon Jovi, a very brilliant A&R man, John Claudner, mm-hmm. who was at Geffen, uh, who had signed Aerosmith, tracked me down and forced them to meet with me. <laughs> Against their will? Against their will. Really? Yeah. I mean, he was like, just wouldn't have it. You he know, being who? John Claudner. John Claudner. Oh, Claudner was when, insisting they work yes, with you. Yes. And so they flew me to Boston and I get there and there, there's this big uh, airplane hangar and there must have been an army of guitars on, on the floor. There was a stage, but on the floor, it was a hundred guitars, every color, every sparkle, every <laughs> tiger, every leopard, every, you know, Les Paul, every everything. Sounds like Joe. <laughs> I mean, it was excess to the max. Yeah. And on stage, there was a mic stand and it was like covered in the like scarves. Long, long scarves yeah. and big walls of amps, you know, like Marshall amp m- mountains behind them. And I walk in and Stephen, and you know, there were roadies around and there was some kind of like kind of noise going on at the end of the stage. And they were over there playing with a backwards loop of the guitar. And it was going, na na, na na, na na, na na. And so uh, Stephen said, Oh, come over here. I, w- I want to I see what you think about this. I hadn't said a word yet. <laughs> and, I, and so all of a sudden he started singing, going, da da. Donna cruising for the ladies. Da 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 cruising, and I, I was like, and then they stopped and they said, "Well, what do you think?" I said, "That's really bad." <laughs> and Joe's like arms crossed, you know. Now he's like looking at me sideways, and then uh, Stephen said, "Well, um, I said, you know, Van Halen wouldn't put it on the B side of their worst record." <laughs> That's how bad it is. And I thought that would make them like laugh, but they were, you know, Joe's getting like darker and darker. I thought the roadies were going to like drag me out. Wait, let me jump in there real quick. Just an important question. 
is it, clearly it's not difficult for you to go into basically legends at this point, Aerosmith, and tell them that their song sucks. I mean, you got to have some stones to do that, but you know, that's your job, right? You've got to be willing to say what you really feel if you're going to work with people, I would think, in that capacity. Well, I, I'm kind of like, I've determined that the best way to, to get in with somebody is to get in their face right away. Not like this little, you know, bit by bit stuff, get to know you. It's like, no. I go right to work. Be assertive. Be assertive. Yeah. And um, so, but the, the the chemistry was there. You yeah. know, it was like a very exciting thing. And, and so Stephen sheepishly said, well, when I was first singing that riff, I was singing, uh, dude looks like a lady. And I said, what? Dude looks like a lady. I said, that's brilliant. That's a hit. And Joe said, but we don't know what that means. <laughs> and I said, I know what that means. Okay, just f- follow me with this. And so tell me, I said, how did you come up with it? So Stephen said they were in a bar on the, you know, on the shore. And uh, it was after hours and they had gone there. And, you know, they were all like you know, in programs, they couldn't drink or anything. So they're all drinking their sodas and even the roadies. And at the end of this long bar, like everything, no, nobody else on the stool. At the very end, there was this huge blonde platinum mullet and a very curvy figure, black nails, jewelry, you know, just like very kind of, inviting and so they're all drawing straws who was going to go over and you know kind of introduce themselves Mm -hmm. and stuff so suddenly um you know she turns around on the bar stool and it's vince neal of motley Crue, (laughs) and they were all like "Ooh, that dude looks like a lady that dude looks like a lady and that's where the hook was born wow that is so so there therefore we wrote cruised into a bar on the show her picture graced the grime on the door. Mm. She was a long lost love at first bite, right? Right. And so um, the the great thing about the song is that the guy goes in there and just it takes going backstage where she whips out a gun, tries to blow me away. Da-da, da-da. The, 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 the person narrating doesn't run away. Like, Goes into it. Right. And says, never judge a book by its cover or who you're going to love by your lover. And then later, my funky lady, I like it, like it, like it, like that. So, like, recently uh, there was some, like, kind of LGBT problem with the song they 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 said well that song's like making fun of transgender it's like no <laughs> no it's acceptance no it's acceptance <laughs> you've got it like completely wrong yeah, totally. and i'm a co-writer and i'm gay 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 <laughs> um i gotta ask you about uh i can't let this go by we got to get something on alice cooper who has been a regular guest and i've known forever uh, the huge comeback for him with Poison, which you also produced as well, mm-hmm. right? You worked on that record. I, I co-wrote and and um, the entire record with Alice, and I produced the album. The album Trash, of course, which just yes. turned 30. 
not too long ago. I know. I had Atlas on to talk about it being 30 years. I know, long. and his show now is so great. It's one of the best shows ever. Yeah, he's still. It's he's, it's remarkable how good he still is after all these years. Yeah, and Cheryl's in the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now he like cuts off her head every night. <laughs> <laughs> so we know that 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 was a huge pivotal moment for Alice. But let me ask you real quick about a couple things, maybe not as uh, you know well known in terms of popularity. You worked with Rat. And mm-hmm. you did a, a record, a, a great track, Love and Use a Dirty Job, which, again, you talk about those great titles. That's a great title. Mm-hmm. What were your impressions of Rat working with those guys? Well, it was a band that just felt like it was falling apart. Mm. And, you know, there was a lot of, you know, kind of members that were having difficulty staying clean. And well, sadly, um, Robin passed away that, because of that, his issues. Yeah. King, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, um, I think that, um, I helped, you know, to, to bring the, you know, the main guys together a little bit because they could tell me their ideas, you know, instead of them fighting about ideas. And then I could be the arbiter on what, what I thought. Mm. And so some, and then I had to be fair. I had to like side with one and then side with the other and then you know kind of go back and forth and uh you know it was it was it was hard record record to to come together it wasn't like fun like it is when you're with somebody like you know Steven Tyler or Richie Sambora who had right. like the life of the party right. I mean these were troubled guys that were like you know kind of very anxious about what was going to happen next with their career and so I I think it's a very underrated record. Um, I think it, the songs on it, you know, they're very well put together and written and played. And Warren did such an incredible job with the guitars and everything. You know, I didn't I didn't produce it, but I was kind of an executive producer on the record, mm. wasn't I? Yes, or, I believe so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Um, you know, I that that was the time I was putting I was putting out my first solo record, Discipline, on Elect, Electra Records, and um, it was kind of like hard to uh, do that and do the promotion for it, and you know, mm. and still work with other bands. So I decided to stop producing for a while. You also did an album which uh, was was not commercially successful, really, but a really interesting record, also at an interesting time in this band's history. But for those that don't know you, which I believe you also produced an album for Scorpions called Humanity right. Hour One, which was a yes. concept record. Yes, which I co-produced with James Michael. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, uh, there was a futurist named Liam Carl that I met, and he did this extraordinary artwork with uh, models that he turned into half, you know, with the skin torn off and there were bots and all this kind of stuff. And that inspired me to um, bring together a kind of a songwriting camp uh, with the Scorpions. And we did it in Nashville. And um, it was was so much fun. And um, we had this kind of end of times theme and with this idea that, you know, the bots and the humans were going to have this war to the death and uh, that there were like sympathetic bots that were going to be on, you know, the side of humanity. And, you know, it was like, I mean, we've seen movies like this that happen afterwards. And so 
I I definitely thought that that album should have been turned into like this should be the soundtrack to one of those movies mm. from beginning to end. I mean, every song if you listen to it, the lyrics, and but also I agree. You know, everybody told me don't do it, don't do don't do the Scorpions. They're over. They're so whatever. You know, they're you know they they've been over for a while. This is going to be bad for your image or reputation and all this and I I like them so much I said but if I'm going to do this then this is what what has to happen and um you know I'm I'm I made them take voice lessons and really you know really work out every day and then um I got involved um in restyling them you know I said no more leopard shirts no more gold chains <laughs> no more cowboy boots and cowboy hats we're going to look like we're from Germany and <laughs> in the cold. And, uh, you know. So Scorpions really went through the complete Desmond Child boot camp. Yeah. It went way beyond writing and producing. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> I don't think they really even understood what the record was about themselves. You know, it was kind of like I was tinkering a bit. I mean, the finale song is like out of this world. It's like theater. Yeah. You know, it's like cabaret or something. Yeah. And um, I think someday somebody I want to do I want to do Humanity Hour two. I think it's time for Humanity Hour two. Well, Scorps are still out there. Every time they say they're retiring, they come back and play more. So you I know you never I just you never adore know. them as as people. And oh they, yeah, and they work so hard. And um, you know the the. The voice, the voice. There's nobody that has a voice like that. Yeah. And the last one, because we have like three minutes left, but you referenced this before. Joan Jett, I Hate Myself for Loving You, which is, uh, you said yourself has been repurposed a number of times, but also to the point that it was repurposed and took a rest and now it's back as the Sunday night football theme That's right. with different lyrics to it. Right. So th was that the only time you worked with Joan on that track? No, no. We wrote Little Liar. We wrote... Um Get off the cross. I need the wood. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, we we wrote a bunch of songs together. When you hear um, when you hear a song like "I Hate Myself for Loving You," which you co-wrote with her, become repurposed for like a football theme with no, completely we did different it together. lyrics. We repurposed it. Oh, oh, you I, did. I was involved. Yeah. Oh, okay. And um, I'm I'm really happy about it because it you know it keeps the song in the bloodstream. Because when people hear the original, they they know it's the same song. Right. It's it's almost like national anthems sometimes of different countries are the same music, you know. Right. But they'll say you know, uh, you know, France instead of you know something else, or Canada, or instead of the Queen, or I don't know. It's some it's kind of like that. Some themes can have new librettos written for them and in this case it's great because faith hill was the first one who sang the that right. new version then pink came right and then carrie underwood uh came in she said no i have to write my own song so they tried that for a few years and then by popular demand they said no back. come on and i love the, the 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 commercial they do or the the intro they do with joan playing guitar yeah. and i mean it's just i couldn't be prouder Okay, last question, because I'm out of time, just about. What's the biggest song you've written in terms of just popularity, financially, 
get, what's the like I asked this to Holly when she was on and it was simply the best mm-hmm. to, which she was I didn't even know was Bonnie I Tyler pried it out of her <laughs> no one had cut Tina. it yeah nobody <laughs> had said, cut it before in terms of breadwinner in terms of popularity that's her song number one earner number one biggest song what's yours living on a prayer I would think you were going to say that yeah and I was made for loving you and uh, living la vida loca those are would those be the three biggest earners too? Yeah, mm-hmm. those are Absolutely. the ones that the mailbox yeah. when the check comes, Desmond opens. And yeah, the and I hate myself zeros. for loving you too. You know, well, I would think because of how much it's been repurposed too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's look look at my sheet. I'm not even close to done talking to you, but we're out of time. I'll come back sometime, please, man. I enjoyed the hell out of it, and I know you said you're in Nashville. We're due to do some shows from there because we have a I'll, studio there, so that would be awesome to try come, to put something come together. Come on down, set a spell. Desmond, Desmond Child Live is the album, everybody. Check it out. It does include his versions of songs like Living on a Prayer, You Give Love a Bad Name, Dude Looks Like a Lady, Angel, I Was Made for Loving You, Hate Myself for Loving You, You Want to Make a Memory, a great later period Bon Jovi song. I know that you're uh, very proud of. And of course, like I said, I don't mean in any way to diminish all the other non-rock stuff you've done because there's tons of great stuff there as well. This being a rock show, obviously, that's where I went into the rock. And there's plenty to dig into that we didn't even get into on the rock side. But we'll save that for another time. Great to meet you. Thank you for coming in. Well, that was a lot of fun, and I easily could have done another hour or two with that guy. Desmond Child, great, great conversation. We will do more down the line. Check out his live record, which is out now. And I thank him for the time and coming into the studio on Trunk Nation, my daily show on Sirius XM Volume Channel 106. Listen to me on Sirius XM every day on 106, live, 2 to 4 Eastern, replaying every night, 10 to midnight Eastern, full shows and video on demand on the Sirius XM app. I'll see you guys again next Thursday for another all-new episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast. It is produced by Katie Irizarry. And, of course, be sure to follow me on Twitter for up-to-the-second news info and updates at Eddie Trunk. Instagram, fan page on Facebook, all just under my name, at Eddie Trunk. And the official online home loaded with music news is eddietrunk.com. Have a good week. Thanks. Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. 
with nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music field trip to America's jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com.